0: Would you pray with me? Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for opportunities to gather, to read your words to us, to pray, to lift up our notes of celebration, our notes of concern. And this morning on this particular day, God, we want to pray for the moms in this room, for the moms that are online. And this past year, I know that there have been an awful lot of individuals who have welcomed in their first child. And God, we're so grateful for that. We're so grateful for new moms. We're so grateful for the joy that that is. We're so grateful that we get to see and be a witness of just new life coming from the womb and blessing individuals and families and communities. And we just want to lift up and celebrate those new moms with you this morning. On the other side of that coin, I know that Equally, there is a lot of moms in this room and in this community of faith and in this city that lost a child, and whether that be through miscarriage or whether that be through their younger one had passed away, uh, God, I know that you bring a unique comfort in those spaces, spaces that are just heart-wrenching. God, this morning we want to celebrate and thank you for the patience that you have given mothers in the last 20 months, 18 months, whatever it's been. There's been a lot thrown at moms particularly of being at home and online learning and all the things that we, that we said we'd never do, uh, pandemic has kind of brought that around in us. God, we thank you for patience. We thank you for care. We thank you for an extra measure of grace and gentleness through it all. We want to lift up families, moms who long to be a mom, but due to all kinds of issues connected to infertility, they just can't conceive. And again, just significant grief and struggle and every emotion you could possibly imagine is present in that. God, we pray that for those families, that this would be a different year going forward, that we would hear great news of great joy, that you have done something significant in their life, and have, whether that be through just a flat-out act of God, or whether that be um, through you, through science and medicine, and all the different things that our doctors and nurses are able to do now, that we would get to celebrate with those families next to Mother's Day, that that would be just a different kind of day for them. God, in that same space, um, sometimes we say things and do things, unaware of the, of the ears that they fall on. And God, I just, I'm so grateful for um, these individuals that just demonstrate grace towards us. Uh, forgive us for the silly things that we would say, the hurtful things that we would, that we would say, and we're unaware that we're even saying them to stepmoms, we pray for them this morning, knowing that that's a unique complexity as they navigate uh, different environments than, than others. We pray and celebrate for moms who are just wonderful. Um, m- many of us in this room have just great moms who, who love their kids, who Love all that is connected to what it is to being a mom, and we're just so grateful for that, and so grateful for the many that are here in this room, that you would continue to fuel them and give them all that they need to do this incredible work of, of being a mother and the complexities that that is, and we're just so grateful for them. For the ones in this room and listening online whose moms um, were lacking in one area or another, and this day is filled with all kinds of Mixed emotions, Um, God, we just pray that those families, those individuals would experience just your love and grace on this particular day. For those of us that can't see or be with our moms due to COVID-19, that that somehow uh, Zoom, which gets tiresome after a while, this would just be a life-giving moment to see and talk with moms who are living in different parts of the country. That there can be meaningful encounters even this afternoon, whether it be through a phone call or kind of a FaceTime chat or whatever the case might be. And God, it's in these moments where I am keenly aware of and I'm deeply reminded of your words to us where you speak of how we are to ask you for daily bread. And that language of daily bread is far more than just food that we would eat for nourishment. It's everything that we need to get through each day. And I know that we've touched on several different dynamics that are true of individuals in this room and listening online. And God, may we be a people, whether it's Mother's Day or Father's Day or any day for that matter, that we would just forever be reminded of and live in that space of going to you for what we need for today. And not being a person that's held captive by the worries of tomorrow or next year or next Friday. But that whatever we need to do for this day, that we would turn to you and find our nourishment. Find the grace that we need to extend, whether it's a mom or a dad or a friend, that we would find it in you. That we would find the words that we would need to have with our children that can be difficult conversations. That we would find those words from you. The tone and temperament that we need often to navigate situations, that we would find that in you. The strength and courage to try new things and to move into new areas and to move into spaces that would be uncomfortable uncomfortable for us, that we would find those things in you. God, we're grateful for your idea of mom. We're grateful for your design and creation around moms. The role they play in our lives, the the faithful instruction day after day after day. God, we just pray that we would encourage our moms, that we would be a church family that cultivates uh, moms in, in wonderful, wonderful ways. For your goodness and glory, we ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Well, this morning, we continue on in our conversation of life and doctrine, and this is perhaps one of my favorite conversations to have, and on the screen, there's a slide that kind of outlines our different doctrines that we've been working through, Um, Trinity, uh, Scripture, creation, fall, the curse, and uh, this morning, we're talking about the doctrine of, of salvation, and this is really the conversation that's connected into God's heart for his lost ones. And this is a significant conversation, it's an incredible dialogue, and I'm looking forward to, to this kind of moment with you as we work this conversation through, but I want to spend some time just quickly working through, Beth, these different uh, doctrines that we've been looking at, God, Scripture, creation, fall, uh, it's probably the third or fourth slide in, uh, there it is, here we go. This is where we're at this morning, and how these are all kind of woven together. And one of the things I would say in this doctrine, if we get so focused on some of the details, it loses the weight and the size and scope of how amazing this conversation really ought to be and has forever been and forever will be. But for reasons that I don't really know, the church sometimes really gets this conversation wrong in that this is often the, the doctrine of salvation or the good news of Jesus. And it would normally start somehow like this. Um, uh, you're a sinner. God's angry at that fact. And if you don't accept Jesus as Savior, you're going to go to hell. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Like that's kind of how that, that dialogue goes. Um, and, and this is where this gets frustrating for me as a teacher, preacher, as a reader of the Scriptures. Um, th- those dynamics are true, but we've got so focused on, on some language that the conversation of salvation becomes very transactional, very forensic, very kind of courtroomy, and it loses this grand picture of God's love and affection for His world, which, as per the fall last week, now are in a category of being the lost ones. This morning, to help kind of paint this grand picture of God's love, I want to take a big step backwards and ground the conversation of salvation inside or around the the conversations that we've had very quickly of creation and fall. We so often forget that God had something in mind when he created his world we often forget that what we experience and what we're living in this isn't what god had in mind and when we walk in struggle when we walk through brokenness uh, i get it there's a space of like where is god and how could this be true and da, da 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 and and underneath of that it's this isn't what god had in mind there's a very real dynamic called the fall sin and death or the curse that as at play in his world bringing death and bringing harm and ushering all kinds of things that we as human beings will forever struggle in. And it's God who, out of love for His world, out of care for His creation, does something amazing to create a space for you and I where we can get back in on what God had in mind from the beginning, which then sets us up for what is to finally and fully come when He returns sometime down the road. We sometimes forget that right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve, missed the mark, right after they sin, the curse enters this world. Sin and death enter this world. And immediately following this, God is seen coming to Adam and Eve, weaving together clothing so they can cover their now nakedness, their shame that they are experiencing. And we see God's pursuit, his heart for them, early in the text of Scripture. But before we talk about God's heart for them and throughout the Scriptures, I want us to spend just a moment talking about this idea of being part of this group called the Lost Ones and what that actually means. And several weeks ago, when writing this particular sermon, this conversation, uh, Pastor Dana came with me with a book because he knew kind of where we were going. He says, you should read this because this is just a really insightful kind of a using different language to describe realities that the scriptures would speak to that are true over our lives. And we don't have it on a screen, so I just ask you to listen closely. It's a, it's a couple paragraphs, and I'll do my, fest, my best to read slow so you can hear this nuance that describes the reality of you and I being the lost ones before a living God. And and this is what the author writes. He says, I had always thought that a lost one referred to the soul's destination, not its condition. But it's the condition that's the real problem. If a car no longer works, then it doesn't matter where that car ends up, whether it be a junkyard or the valet parking at the Ritz-Carlton. We are not lost because we're going to end up in the wrong place. We're going to wind up in the wrong place because we are lost. We live on the planet of lost souls. Sin disintegrates us. In sin, this is this conversation of missing the mark, in sin, my appetite for lust or anger or superiority dominates my will. My will, which was made to rule my body, becomes enslaved to what my body wants. Sin, missing the mark, eventually destroys my capacity, even for enjoyment, let alone meaning. It distorts my perceptions. It alternates my relationships. It inflames my desires, and it enslaves my will. This is what it means to be a lost one. It's not a cosmic threat. It's a clinical diagnosis. It's not that I could end up there. It's I could actually become this. And as clearly as I can say it, and as true as I'm standing here on this platform, I was, at one point in my life, a part of this category called the Lost Ones. I know many of you you in this room, you were in the category of the Lost Ones. There's many of you in this room and listening online that still are in the category that God would describe as the Lost Ones. And we are together in this group and it all begins the moment Adam and Eve walk away from God in Genesis chapter 3. And here's the good news that really we have to always ground ourselves in God even though we are the ones who walked away from him, even though we are the ones that said I would sooner do life my own way, I would sooner be the king and queen of my life even though I'm the one that kind of ruined and thwarted all of God's heart and desire for his world, even though I am the one who disobeyed and walked away, God did not wash his hands of us. He did not wash his hands of his creatures that he has made with his image imprinted on us. He did not kind of throw us away, so to speak. The reason why I'm confident in this, and this goes back to two weeks ago or three weeks ago, is because I understand the Scriptures to be true, that these are God's words to us. And woven inside the text of Scripture, we see God's heart being played out towards His lost ones. In Genesis chapter 3, I've already alluded to this. Adam and Eve, they walk away from God. And God arrives quickly in this moment, where sin and death are now dominating the landscape and he begins making them clothing and he begins to care for them now that they are outside of what he had in mind for them. We keep reading through the Old Testament and again we see God's heart on display through the story of Noah. It's curious, we read Noah and we're like, mm, God seems a little angry here. Well, sin and death, it, it is frustrating and angering to God. But what we fail to pick up in the narrative is that when God looks at his world, it describes the world as though every inclination of the human heart was evil all the time. And it's curious, I'm not sure when those were written as far as the date goes, but I know when I watch the evening news even now, like in the 21st century, it appears as though every inclination of the human heart is evil all the time. It just seems to be woven into our DNA that there's something fundamentally wrong with the human race that has been plaguing us for decades upon decades and centuries upon centuries. And it's through Noah where God begins to kind of, let's go at this again. And through one family, he starts over again trying to solve this problem of sin and death. He comes to Abraham a little bit later on. And he says to Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all nations. Through your family, through your genealogy, through all of your offspring, I'm going to bless all people of the world. We see this blessing start to unfold early in the Old Testament through the story of Passover. In the book of Exodus, we discover there's this moment where Israel is in, in captivity in the land of Egypt, and they've been there for 400 years, and God begins to go to work, and on this one particular night... After there's been nine plagues already, God tells them that on this particular night, an angel's going to walk through the the land, and everyone who finds a lamb and takes its blood and puts it on its doorposts and mantles, your son, your oldest son, will be spared from what's going to unfold this evening. Well, Israel, Egypt, and every other people that are held captive in the land of Egypt They are aware of these words, and many of these individuals respond by faith, find a lamb, take the blood, and put it on the doorpost, and the next morning, as Pharaoh releases the people, it's Israel and a whole lot of people who are not Israelites leave the land of Egypt. Several chapters later, we discover there's this moment where where Moses is trying to deal with all of these people that are not Israelites, but now are a part of the family And God gives them instruction on to where they're to live and how they're to fit into the community that God has redeemed in this moment. We see this this ongoing story of God's heart for the lost ones all through the Old Testament. We see it in the story of Rahab. Rahab is this prostitute who lives in the city of Jericho. Rahab is aware that Israel's God is marching towards the city. Rahab is aware and believes wholeheartedly that the God of Israel is the real and true and living God. And when the spies arrive at her home, she is quick to say, we have heard of your God and I want to play. I want to be a part of this team because your God is real and he is true. And Rahab, we learn years later through the book of Hebrews that it's Rahab's faith in the living God that actually redeems her in this moment. God's heart is on full display for all people in the story of Rahab. We see the same story at play with Ruth and Naomi. There's a conversation on this road between two women who are just filled with brokenness. Everyone they love is dead, and they have nowhere to go, and one is saying the other, like, you should go back there, and they're like, no, 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 like, I'm not going to leave you. Your God will be my God, and we see God's heart for his lost ones on display here in this moment. We see the same heart, for the lost in the story of Jonah with Nineveh. I want you to go and preach this to these people. And Jonah is like, no, I don't like those people. And God's like, well, you're going to. And if you know the story, Jonah runs away, a giant fish eats him, spits him up on a beach, and then he goes and finally preaches belligerently to the Ninevites. And the whole city comes to know God because God's heart is for his lost ones. We see that getting played out over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There, God's heart is on display for the lost ones in that, the the King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians that make their God the God of the kingdom. We see the same thing with Daniel, the lion's den. After this moment, it's Darius who declares that the God of Daniel be the God of the whole Persian empire. We see God's heart for his lost ones all the way through the Old Testament narrative. And this is where this gets exciting for me and why I love this conversation, because these moments of Rahab and Ruth and Naomi and others, these are simply small-scale examples of God's heart for his lost ones that he he makes fully um, real through his son, Jesus Christ. So often, as churches, we go through every calendar and calendars and churches go by fast. And just to give you an example, like we're beginning probably next week to write our Advent series or kind of at least map it out in 20... Like that's a ways away, but they go by fast. And every year we gather in churches all across the world and we tell the great stories of God and we don't necessarily recognize that these are the kind of dots on the line that allow us to tell the great story of God's love. So, using real moments in human history this morning, I want to tell you again the story of God's heart for his lost ones and we'll begin the story at Christmas time. This is the moment where God comes to us, Emmanuel, God with us. Where Jesus' life matters, where God sends his son, he's born in Bethlehem, lives his life and during that 30 plus years of life, Jesus reveals what life was to be lived like and experienced in context with His heavenly Father. Paul speaks of Jesus as the second Adam. He demonstrates to us that we were to live in reliance of the living God every day. That we were to walk in life and in fullness and turn to Him at every moment. Jesus reveals this through His life. So many people, they're like, oh, let's get on to the death and let's get on to the good parts. Well, it's, this is This is significant. Because it's the 30 years of Jesus' life where if Hebrews is right, it's He's learning obedience so that when Good Friday arrives, the other big holiday that we celebrate, this is the moment where sin and death are beaten. This is where forgiveness is experienced. This is where the curse ultimately is destroyed through Jesus' death. And as the father looks at his son who is dying on a Roman cross and is declared dead and is buried in a tomb for three days, it's the father who looks at his now dead son and says, you were perfect. You didn't deserve to die. So he raises him from the dead. This is called Easter Sunday morning. These are all the events that we celebrate telling us the story of God's heart and affection for his lost ones. In the morning that Jesus gets up from the grave, this is, this is why we're here. You take that away, and like, we're just doing Mother's Day in our jammies at home. This, like, we are a resurrection people. This is the moment where God kind of reverses the curse, reverses sin and death. This is the moment where God's act of love for his world is on full display. And it's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ where God says, I've done something significant for you to participate in. Where someone now who is lost can become found. Where someone who experiences death can experience new and resurrected life in and through Jesus Christ. Which then gives way to the whole holiday or season of Pentecost in church life. Fifty days after the resurrection, Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit. It's in this moment where all that Jesus says to us, all that Jesus does for us, all that he invites us into, it's now possible because he has sent us to advocate the Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of those who by faith who have responded to Jesus. And here's the part that we so quickly glaze over when it comes to this conversation. It is through the Holy Spirit's activity in my life, in your life, that allows me to wage war against sin and death that rule in my body. Last week, we talked about this Romans 7 struggle, that I know that there's good I ought to do, but I don't find that I have the capacity to do this thing that I know I should do, and I find myself doing the opposite. It is through the Holy Spirit's help that I'm actually then empowered to wage war against this law of sin that's at work in my life. Every day of my life, there are moments where there are decisions to be made. One that honor God and bring life and one that dishonors God and brings death into my life in all kinds of ways. It is by and through the Spirit's activity where I can wage war and to do what Paul says, where I am to put to death the sin that reigns in my mortal body. I can't do that without the Holy Spirit's help in my life. I can't break habits. I can't stop gossiping. I can't stop lying. I can't stop stealing. I can't stop being angry. I can't stop being greedy. I can't do any of those things in and of myself. It is by faith through Jesus where He then gives me this Holy Spirit who dwells in my heart that empowers me to wage war against these things that bring me harm and bring us this incredible space of resurrection life. That when someone who is 9 or 10 or 19 or 20 and they come to know Christ, that by the time they're 80, they should look and sound different. If you're still as angry as you are when you're 80 as when you were 20, something's gone wrong. If you're still as abusive and mean and all of those things, then we've never really understood what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I love these moments where I'll sit with people. And I'm like, I've been a follower of Jesus for 60 years. I'm like, then how are you this angry? Like, how are you this mad at like politics? How can you still be so fired up over things that are irrelevant in life? How is it that you can get knocked off the rails so easy if Jesus has been living in me for the last 50, 60 years? These four seasons, these four celebrations, Christmas. Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and Pentecost. These are the dots that we have to connect that is the ongoing story of God's heart for His lost ones. There's a reason why in John 3, it reads, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever responds to who He is, that whoever believes in Him, they will not perish. And that's not a... This goes back to this conversation of lost ones that's not only talking about perishing at the end of my life. I work in an industry. I'm a pastor. I see people perish long before they've perished. This is my world. I live in a world that perishes long before they've perished. They simply become what they are now. Now. And it's awful then. It's awful then. We live in a world where God has done something significant through his son. For the ones who are lost, which is all of us at some point in our life. All of us. God's desire, God's hope, is that we would all respond to his activity in his world so that we might experience life. That he would... See His sons and daughters experience redemption and wholeness and forgiveness. And things that are broken be put back together again by and through the King who lives and reigns, who empowers us through His Spirit. In Second Peter 3.9, it reads this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you. He is patient with me. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to Repentance. When I stop and think about God's heart for His lost ones, there are significant implications for my life. And here, here's the, the, the statements that we'll kind of finish up as I work our way through. If you don't want to be a lost one, one must follow Jesus Christ. If you don't want to be a lost one, one must follow Jesus Christ. In John 8, Jesus is recorded saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. As someone who was lost, there is a space of my life, there's a moment in my history where I walked in darkness. I recognized Jesus to be who He is, and I decided to follow, and I transitioned from being someone who was lost to someone who is being found, where now I walk in the light of life. How do I know if I am a found one which has plagued Christians for a long, long time? Well, how do you know? Maybe my prayer didn't stick. Like I know many of you in this room, I'm one of them, that I probably prayed a hundred times that Jesus would save me, unsure if He heard it the first time. Over and over and over again, I would say this prayer like, Maybe you didn't hear me. Maybe, 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 let's just say it again, let's just say it again, let's just say it again. Here's how I know I've transitioned from being a lost one to a found one, and it's not rooted in the 101th prayer, 101st, I think is how that's supposed to say, not 101th, um, the 101st prayer of like, just in case you didn't hear it the first time. It's, two, it's really two things, but it's really talking about the same thing. It's a simple faith in one's life, where that person comes to say, you are the Son of God. You are the one who has died for me. You are all that you say that you are. And I will trust you. I will follow you. I will commit my life to taking my lead from you in all things. This is as simple as it gets. It's a simple faith or someone comes to this moment in their life where I do not like being in the lost category anymore solely because life is difficult. It's filled with heartache and brokenness. There are things of our lives that we cannot rid ourselves of. We, we dress it up. We try to mask it. We try to hide it. But the ones closest to you, it always works itself out. And the one that comes to recognize their need for a Savior because they can't solve this It's a simple faith that moves us from being lost into being found. And then it's a robust faith throughout the duration of my life. It starts with a simple faith conversation early, and then for the next 60 years, it's a robust faith to pursue Jesus Christ in the middle of every mountaintop and every valley that you will walk through. It is both of these things. The ingredient is faith. Don't hear me saying something I'm not. The ingredient is faith, but it begins with a simple faith when I'm nine. For me, I was nine years old. It was a very simple faith. My mom and dad told me, this is who Jesus is. By faith, I believed and responded, and I'm now 43. From nine to 43, my life looked very different. I'm embarrassed of my 19-year-old self. When I run into people of my past, I'm like, oh, I hope they don't remember that. And then they're like, hey, do you remember? I'm like, yeah, I remember. Please give me a half an hour because I'm not that same person anymore. Some of you attend this church now because we went to school together at university. Like, it's an awkward space when you walk in. I'm like, I'm not glad to see you because you only remember me from when I was 19. A simple faith grows through time into a robust faith where I depend on and I turn to and I rely on Christ in every season of my life. And it's curious, when you get into the text of Scripture, it talks about the ones who are faithful all the way through to the end. All the way through to the end. These are the ones who are faithful to Christ, the Lamb of God. Jesus himself speaks to this in Matthew 16. I think it's one of my favorite passages. It reads this way. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. This is when you stop ruling your own life. This is when you come to a moment of decision and I have to train myself by and through the Spirit. I have to deny what I think is right in this moment and then I turn and follow Christ. I deny myself, I take up that cross and I follow me, follow Jesus. He goes on to say, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? What good is it to gain all the things you could possibly gain and still be a lost one? What gain? What have we gained in this life if we've just gained material things and we still are nothing more than a lost one, that God has done something significant to redeem and restore Here's how this information gets played out in my life, and I hope it gets played out in your life in a similar way. I understand early, when we started having our own children, that our children were born in the category of lost ones because of something that they didn't bring upon themselves. I understand that they were born into a world where their heart was in opposition to God's. I understand that this was true of them because the Scriptures describe them this way. Jesus describes them this way. So as a father, Amy, as a mother, we began the work early with our children to pray with them as much as we could. That, that something would happen similar in my life at nine, that there would be this simple faith of, okay, this is who I am and I want to follow Christ. And we begin listening to music that's all about Christ. We begin talking about Christ as often as we can in our vans as we drive. And I know some of you look at me like, oh, it must be different at a pastor's home. Nope. It's the same struggle. There is never a version where my kids call them up on my knee and they're like, tell me more, Papa. Like it's never happens. <laughs> it doesn't happen this way. It is the same struggle that you have. We've tried everything. We have discovered a weird form of allowance connected to their spiritual disciplines, which that seems to be going well right now. But we are so committed to the reality that our our kids are lost ones that we will try anything for them to come to see and understand that God has done something significant. Because what overrides the lost ones narrative is God's love for them. And we want them to understand this. We want them to experience it. And I want our kids' faith, which now is transitioned into the simple one, that it would grow to be robust and full through 60 years of their life. So that the ones that I know now, when they're 40 and 50 and 60, their lives are marked by love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. And a whole bunch of other things that only come from God's spirit who's alive and well inside their lives. And if I move beyond my own family, this is how I view you. There are some of you here this morning that you are lost ones. Some of you listening online, you are lost ones. And it's God's overriding narrative, his love for you, that I've given my life to tell you that you're both lost and that God loves you. I know many of you, you've transitioned, that simple faith transition over. And it's amazing, we celebrate that well with you. And it's in 40 more years where we are just excited to see God shape His life in your life. That's our hope as a church family. That we would tell others that there's a problem in the world of being lost. And there's a significant solution to this through Jesus Christ, God's love for you. Here's my question to you, and I'll invite Dana and team as we kind of come into land. I'm still getting used to the three services and time cues and all those things. Um, We've been throwing this verse, watch your life and doctrine closely. If you are a Christ follower, this is the one that can, like, like, kind of sting the most. When you look at the world, do you view the world as though it's lost? And that somehow by God and through God and his spirit in your life, we are a part of the work that he is doing to redeem it. When you look at the world, do you view it as lost and that your life and doctrine begin to be shaped by this reality? Or do you look at the world and you think of people in your life, oh, they're such a good person. Oh, they're such a good person. Listen, if, if, if so-and-so is a good person, then they're not lost and they don't need Jesus but if so-and-so is lost, then I want to speak accurately of the heart state that they're in because it creates an urgency, not a, not a weird thing, but I purposefully pray for my friends who are not followers of Jesus yet. I, I view them in this light. I try to figure out ways to kind of have conversations with them that God brings about when we spend time together. We have them into our home for dinner and meals. Because I understand this is in fact the mission of the church, God's people, which we're going to get to next week. We don't just gather to gather's sake. It's fun and all. But there's something that we are called to be about, and it is driven by our understanding that there are people who are lost, lost ones. And yes, I'm concerned about where they'll end up, but I am more concerned about their Sunday afternoons and their Mondays and their Tuesdays right now that they don't become what they already are. It's my hope that we would watch our life and doctrine closely. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, lost ones are all around us. And through your words, you have revealed your heart for lost ones. A lost coin, lost sheep, prodigal son, and the list goes on and on. May we be people who view the world, our life and doctrine closely, that we would participate with you in this incredible work of redemption. The incredible work of seeing where you're working praying for hearts to be softened that people would become found ones by and through your spirit for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.